Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, I've got three problems that I've read about over the last couple of weeks, and I want to get your opinion of which problem do you think is the one that we should be most concerned of as Americans. The problems are the 50 richest Americans now equal the poorest 165 million Americans. Sports ratings are down and the topic of space junk. And is it an issue there? And so I want to just start out with this story that came from Bloomberg. And the title was 50 richest Americans now equal poorest 165 million Americans. Here's the best paragraph I read. The 50 richest Americans now hold as much wealth as half of the U.S., as COVID-19 transforms the economy in ways that have disproportionately rewarded a small class of billionaires. New data from the U.S. Federal Reserve, a comprehensive look at U.S. wealth through the first half of 2020 shows stark disparities by race, age, and class. While the top 1% of Americans have a combined net worth of $34.2 trillion, the poorest 50%, about 165 million people, hold just point. $0.08 trillion, or about 1.9% of all household wealth. The 50 richest people in the country, meanwhile, are worth almost $2 trillion, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. And so, Don, this is a classic issue of income inequality. What do you think when you see this headline? The headline didn't surprise me that much because we've all known that people that own resources or have inherited companies have, are worth a tremendous amount. And that's been true in the past, too, with the Standard Oil and the Rockefellers and so forth. What was in the article and the specifics about how different minority groups have not changed in the last 30 years, that was the part that really blew me away. They said the African-American population has, has shown zero increase in overall wealth. They had some very interesting demographic statistics. They had another one that said that at this point, the millennial generation, which is 1981 to 1996, people that were born then, they currently make up the largest part of our workforce in America, over 72 million workers. This is pretty much you and me, Don. They have just 4.6% of the wealth. And I thought that was just kind of staggering. And Zuckerberg has more wealth than like almost all the millennials combined. Yeah, I'm a bit older than that. But yeah, it's true. It, it's, it's amazing how much the wealth is concentrated in the hands of the few. But we've already covered this with billionaires, right? They're all going to give it back to society and then we'll be okay, correct? And I want to come back to that point in a second here. But I, I just thought you said Zuckerberg. They said, and this is another really interesting statistic, Zuckerberg, another Facebook co-founder, Dustin Moskowitz, and then one of the Walmart heirs, Lucas Walton, they control one out of every $40 for the millennial generation, just three people. And I thought that was a staggering way to think about how much wealth is just concentrated by a few people. I guess my question is billionaires, right? You and I, we love billionaires. You and I, of course, are not billionaires yet. Jeff Bezos comes up in the article. They said he now is worth $188.5 billion. He's up 64% on his wealth this year. At this point, depending on how Amazon stock does, he can make or lose $5 billion in a day, depending on paper wealth. Is this a problem, as you said? Like, should the billionaires be concerned about this? Uh, well, I know Jeff Bezos isn't concerned because he doesn't look at the stock price day to day. He said we should be making our decisions at Amazon based upon what's best for the company, not the stock price. So he's probably not worried about it. I mean, these people of tremendous wealth, I don't even think they think about the money that much because they're so driven and focused on what they're pursuing at the moment. But the staggering amount of their wealth is incredible. 
And if they passed it out to 100 communities or 200 communities or whatever, it could really make a difference. I think it's just sitting there idly by. It's just numbers in a bank account. A billionaire's room for error in life is unimaginable. They can go out and probably start companies and drive them into the ground and not even notice that they lost any money. Whereas as we've seen statistics where the average American has little to no savings, so many Americans don't even have $400 in a reserve account for emergencies. The room for error is just almost zero. What we're seeing now with COVID is the poorest of our nation, the most vulnerable, the working poor, their jobs haven't necessarily come back as fast, depending on what service industry maybe they were working in. We're seeing that there's no stimulus coming at any time to try to help these people bridge another few months in their lives. And we're really starting to see again this income inequality that's always been there, but in some ways it's now really becoming easy to see. And it's just staggering when you see so few people on one side of the scale versus hundreds of millions of people on another side. I think the vulnerability part is a good part to notice when you think about the people that aren't just really low income, but imagine if you were like a really good Broadway performer, probably making mid six figures. And now Broadway's done, has been done for a while, seems to be done for the foreseeable future. You, even if you had two months saving, which like you said, almost no Americans have, you're going to burn through that pretty quickly. And the federal stimulus of $1,000 or $1,200 is nice, but again, you fly through that in a week, two weeks, really, based on household expenditures alone. The vulnerability is something that's really point. Although, when you said they can start and close businesses, I did think of my favorite quotes from Richard Branson, who said, if you're a billionaire and you want to become a millionaire, start an airline. And speaking of the airlines, think about the whole travel and tourism industry, right? From the airlines that are now laying off thousands of pilots and flight attendants and mechanics, baggage handlers, to Disney World just announced, I believe, early last week that they're going to be laying off like 28,000 workers or something like that. And just the point being, not enough people are going to the parks, not enough people are spending in all of these service-based areas of our economy, usually you always say an economy has, has reached peak development when it becomes a service-based economy, right? And yet so much of our economy is based on service. I think it's like 70%. There's a lot of people that aren't able to go to work or aren't able to earn the kind of income that they used to by COVID. And I really do think this is an issue that has been totally ignored by our federal government. I think now you're starting to see stuff bubble up as more and more people are getting desperate. But this is a major issue. I don't know how you play through it. I do take issue with you a little bit. Like, what is the federal government going to do to support these people? We spent a few hundred billion to give everybody a thousand dollars. But like I said, that's not going to make a difference in the long run. There's no real culprit other than coronavirus. And those people that have skills that are making money based upon those skills, just like you and I, who are pilots, highly skilled, but ultimately they're just a bus driver in the sky. And if nobody's flying, they don't have a job. If people aren't going to restaurants, uh, wait staff don't have jobs. The government can't change that. They can't bail out these people in perpetuity. There's too many people. The vulnerability is one that you and I've talked about a little bit. I was really worried when this started. Will we have massive state budget cuts? And the answer is no, because a lot of the state is still going. We're still making cars. Companies are still engineering cars. They're paying taxes, not on their plants so much because they had so much tax giveaways. But the economy rolls on. But there is a forgotten 10, 20, 30 percent of people who mostly low wage, mostly service, 
who just don't see a future in the next two months, three months. I don't know. The uh, one article yesterday said that it might be a vaccine by the new year, but I'm not sold yet. I don't know. We've been waiting for this vaccine since March. It was supposed to come in early fall, right? I, I just think these things take a long time to actually get developed and get out there. I think it's a carrot they keep putting it out in front of us because it will eventually come. You know, I think we need to be looking at this as longer than just two or three months. And a part of me just sort of wonders when we look at stimulus, why are we so obsessed with trying to give it to a particular industry? When, why don't we just cut regular checks to people at the lowest end of the economic spectrum? In economics, there's that whole term, the marginal propensity to consume. And it's just the idea that for every dollar that you or I earn, how much of it do we spend on things? Meaning the money goes right back into the economy and starts to circulate to other businesses. The poorest of the poor, their MPC is usually like one. They spend all of it. Therefore, wouldn't we want money to get into all areas of the economy? Wouldn't we want money to get to grocery stores and get to small businesses, small restaurants? Those are probably the places where a lot of the money would get spent. Yeah, although those places are right in front of our face, they're a little bit more invisible than the airlines, which have big, shiny planes and we can really picture. And there's some push, some hard push to get another big bailout for the airlines. But like you said, yeah, give it to poor people. They will spend it. If you give it to middle income, or we are mostly upper income, the two of us, I'm likely to save it. I'm not going to spend it immediately unless I have a big need. If you give it to poor people, they will spend it. I think it gets tied up in the idea of bailing out people for bad choices, because after all, these people are where they are because they have bad choices, or so it's assumed by some. Whenever I had time during, during COVID-19, during the shutdown, I would usually put CNBC on in the morning. And usually... Every other day, one of the running sort of themes was they'd bring in some billionaire hedge fund guy, and they would always talk about how capitalism is broken, how we need to rethink the system, we have to do something different. It was always a little bit disingenuous because they were already billionaires, therefore it's easy to be a billionaire and talk about how a system is broken for people. One of the things that it just made me start thinking about, though, is stock and equity in companies. And they said, basically, the wealthiest 1% own 50% of the stocks in our nation and the wealthiest 10% own 88% of the stocks. And so as the stock market has increased over this last year, it's all the wealthy people who really tend to benefit in that. The poor, which don't own any stocks, don't really get to benefit in any sort of a, of a wealth increase and stuff like that. And therefore, do you think billionaires, when they talk about how the, the system is broken or it's not set up to help the poor, do you think they're actually being genuine in their thinking? Well, I think they're thinking more practically. If you don't have capital, you can't grow capital. We have good friends that have the capital to buy an investment property and then rent out that investment property. Well, that's a great idea and it's a good way to make money, but I don't have the capital to lay it out for another property because then I'd be happy to make the money, but I don't have that kind of capital. And if you have the capital, it just lends to more. So I think wealthy people are like, well, you just have to have more capital. And poor people can't acquire capital. They can't even build net worth because they're too busy meeting the day-to-day. -day. It's a hard ladder to climb to instantly get there. And as we can see from the article, people aren't really climbing. There's a group of people that has a lot of wealth, and then everybody else is pretty stagnant. The biggest takeaway from the article for me was that the percentage of wealth that is held by African Americans has been steady for 30 years. And I think that's, if you take it and look at it a little differently, you say, well, a lot of people say racism is over. What are African-Americans complaining about? We had a black president. It's all better now. 
in the last 30 years, African-Americans have not accrued any more wealth. And that takes us back to 1990. And in 1990, we were in a society that was even more segregated. Well, actually, our schools are more segregated now. But anyway, the point is that we haven't grown much in that area in 30 years. Well, then instead of maybe cutting a government check to the poorest of the poor and cycling that money through the economy and helping people out, what about going back to an idea you and I spoke about on a podcast a few months ago, the universal fund? The idea being give every American an opportunity to own some stock and equity in the country. And the idea being, it's just your right as a citizen that there's an account and there's X amount of, of equity of all the American companies in there. And it's just your birthright to hold it until you die. And then you don't get to pass it on to another generation. But the idea is it all puts us in the same game again. And it all gives us an opportunity at owning a part of America, at owning the one multiplier vehicle that everybody can see their wealth increase at, at a much faster rate. I mean, yes, we could do that. I, in general, I would argue that when the general public in, gets involved in the stock market, it usually ends poorly because exuberance and greed leads people to choices that inevitably comes with a crash. It's like saving for your kid's college when you put away 20 bucks a month. You're like, yes, I'm saving for my kid's college. And in a sense, it gives you a safety blanket that I'm doing something but you're not accruing that much money when you look at the giant need on the other end of this. It makes us feel a little better, but I'm not sure it's making a difference. One idea I had is I've got some friends that always say, we need to have a wealth tax. We need to find a way to tax these billionaires in terms of their assets. Income taxes don't really do much for these guys because most of them own so much of their wealth through equity and stocks of the companies that they have built. One of the things is when you tax to the government, the government then decides how they're going to redistribute it. And we see redistrib redistribution happening through all sorts of government programs. But what if you did do a wealth tax, but literally every dollar that's taxed from the wealth is once again delivered as stimulus to your poorest 30% of the nation or something like that? Once again, we know they're going to spend it. We know they're going to go right out and, and buy stuff. And if our wealthiest people own the most equity in these companies, wouldn't they just benefit again by rising stock prices because there's more money being spent for their companies? You've hit upon a good idea in that it could be like social security in that when you pay your social security tax, you know, it's all going to social security. It's not going to a defense program you don't agree with or a arts funding program you don't agree with. It is going straight to social security. And if you went about saying, we have this new tax, it's on wealth to the guys and girls, for the record, who are extremely wealthy, and it goes directly to be reproportioned in this separate thing. And it's its own separate line item, and it looks separate on your uh, W-2s, then there could be a lot more public support. And I don't see Republicans being able to really work on this as much and say, well, they're just taking the, it's socialism and they're taking their wealth away. I think the general public would say like, no, no, it's going from this group of people to straight to the poor people. But kind of like the lottery does in reverse, where it takes money from the poor people and gives it to the schools. I've always thought there's a very legitimate argument to be made for government spending choices and whether or not they're all efficient, good choices. But again, the idea of, of really what the economy needs is a pure cash injection, and it needs it 
by those who need cash in order to make it. It just seems like an interesting idea. I'm not really sure how you go about taxing wealth. I need to look more into that. I'd be curious what sort of mechanisms are there. I just thought this was an interesting idea. The other question I just want to bring to you is, do you think just like the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s in America was just an aberration? This was where the middle class really got built. It was through the rise of unions and America saw an era of prosperity from the lowest end to the highest end that was much more integrated. You didn't have nearly as much wealth inequality like we see today. Now, today, we seem like we're hearkening back to the era before. We seem like we're back to kind of the gilded age, right, where you had the robber barons. You have a lot of extreme wealth at the top. But most Americans are trying just to eat by. And it makes me wonder if maybe we've tricked ourselves into thinking that a middle class is something that, like, America has always had. And I think maybe it was just something we had for a few decades and that we're kind of reverting back to a mean, but yet the mean isn't something that maybe we necessarily like. I'm with you and I'll answer that. But first, I had an idea as you're talking about how do you tax wealth? Well, you love your universal fund idea. What if you take a percentage of the wealth, which is almost entirely in stock, from the wealthy people? So Jeff Bezos will take 2% of his stock holdings every year and put it in the universal fund and 2% from the Walton family and 2% from the from Zuckerberg. And each time you're eroding their shareholding by a small but significant amount and you can pour it into the universal fund because these aren't really stock holdings. You know, for the record, although Bezos is worth $163 billion, that's not really true because if he sold all $163 billion worth of Amazon stock today, the stock value would fall and it wouldn't really be worth that much. And it's part of the myth and the hope that Amazon is worth that much that makes his stock and his net worth so much. So why don't we just erode their stock value slowly and put it into your universal fund? You with me here? Well, yes. And that was part of the idea was instead of now you're making it a mandatory uh, contribution. And I think whereas the fund idea was that make this the patriotic duty of our billionaires and large corporations. Instead of just picking your pet project, nonprofit organization, make it so that it's the cool thing to do of to donate your money and your equity into a fund where everybody benefits. I think it's not a bad idea. And maybe that is your wealth tax on people. I don't know. I, I just think that this is an issue that's that's not going away. And did you have a thought about the idea of the middle class and maybe oh, yeah, yeah. I, a weird couple of decades? Coming back, and I'm thinking that I was thinking about Moneyball. I was watching Moneyball this morning while I was doing some work. The idea is all data and statistics. And what led to the revolution in sports was this data and statistics. And in business, it's also been a focus on data and statistics and what workers are really worth. And are we paying them too much? How can we avoid paying and bring down costs per unit? And perhaps it's accounting, perhaps it's spreadsheets, whatever it is, has led to a focus on minimizing costs. Uh, I have a friend in the auto industry, and he said the biggest pressure is to create something really good, really efficient, that works really well. And then as soon as you do that, they pat you on the back and they say, reduce the cost, make everything cheaper. And in a sense, that's what we've done with everything we consume. Everything we consume is made in the cheapest, most efficient possible way. And that has led to outsourcing. It's led to changes in the nature of jobs and where they're located and a streamlining, which has really decreased a lot of the middle-class jobs that were making money, manufacturing things and so forth. The data revolution is changing it back in my mind. And that said, maybe you're right. Maybe it was just a weird kind of golden era 
well, golden era in terms of white middle class in the 40s through the 70s, where working people are making good money, making something. And now we've realized it's cheaper to make Etch-a-Sketches in China than Ohio. And it's cheaper to streamline these auto companies and not make everything and have the suppliers make things with their lower wage workers, which may or may not be in America. And it was a bit of an aberration. And you think about every time you make one of these efficiency gains, the real winners are the people that own equity and stocks, right? Those are the people that are looking for the latest earning per share numbers. Those are not the workers that benefit. And I'm not here to say that, that, that a shareholder shouldn't be concerned about that. You know, it seems that they're two diametrically opposed issues. Can you take care of workers and take care of your stock price? Now, a place like Costco, who seems to take care of their frontline workers pretty well, or at least above average compared to other businesses, might argue, yeah, you can do both. But I don't know if other industries think like that necessarily. Would you rather have Costco stock or Walmart stock? I'd like to own both, to be honest. I think they both uh, have a role to play in the future economy and stuff like that. But I guess I could probably walk around uh, and, and wear my Costco stock T-shirt, right? And, and probably people would pat me on the back. And if you looked at Walmart, you'd say, wow, they're really paying their workers the very minimum they need to make. They have streamlined this operation to its point where it provides a cheap product to people that are low income. And they can argue the best thing they can do is provide good products at a low price. But they're also making crazy profits because they're doing that by not paying their workers what they're worth. I mean, Costco workers are happier. And I love going to Costco, but I think I'd rather have Walmart stock. Yeah. No, it's... it's I own some stock and it's interesting because I watched Disney stock increase when they announced that they're going to be laying off all these workers, right? It's a really bizarre feeling when you see like, wow, like these are thousands of people's lives that are now going to be upended. And yet the, the ticker symbol, you know, shows green in the market. And I mean, that's been going on forever, but it, it's just something that, you know, you, if you take a moment, you say, boy, am I, should I really be rooting for this? How should I feel? You should be telling everybody you know to acquire equity, and that's easier said than done. You got to get that universal fund going, right? Um, <laughs> just a last thought on this topic is I was thinking about French Revolution, Russian Revolution, last couple hundred years of the Roman Empire, the rise of Nazi Germany after World War I. A lot of this stuff happens due to extreme income inequality. And usually it doesn't tend to end very well for the top 1% in those societies as they eventually get overthrown. You know, these are obviously extreme examples, but they are relevant examples that are, that are littered all over our history books. Do you think our power brokers, our billionaires, our leaders should be thinking about these sorts of historical examples, because they seem to be regularly occurring themes in history. I thought Donald Trump, when he ran for president in 2016, tapped into a lot of anger that a lot of lower class Americans were feeling towards their lot in life. We could definitely sit here and argue whether or not he's done, done enough to improve it. But I do think he found exactly what a lot of Americans are feeling, but haven't found the voice to channel it. Do you think our billionaires really should be talking more than just saying capitalism is broken? Should they be doing something else? Well, I think you're right about Donald Trump. And I think Bernie Sanders would have been a better opponent for, to, for him because he had the same message. You're getting screwed. He's just saying you're getting screwed by big industry, not by the liberals. And so and the immigrants that Donald Trump was selling. And so there's that. Um, it, you know, when you talk about the revolutions, maybe I'm wrong. When I'm picturing French Revolution, Russian Revolution, I'm picturing people starving. 
I'm picturing people sitting in a hovel and barely getting by with legitimate resentment and anger. At the same time, the change that has brought these technology companies tremendous wealth and value has also contributed to American lives in ways that are hard to really quantify. So if I'm a billionaire and I have all the money I want, yes, I have a super nice car, but I spend 1% of my time driving really probably. I have a nice house, but it's a place where I live. What do they have that's truly exclusive? In the French Revolution, yes, the rich were going to these plays and theater and so forth. But if I'm a low-income American, and as long as I have enough to have a place to live, some sort of heating and air conditioning, even if it's small, do I have Facebook? Yes. Do I have Twitter? Yes. Do I have a Netflix account? Probably can afford that. I'm consuming many goods and services that the same wealthy people are consuming. And I can feel a little bit connected to them, but I can also feel entertained. Are we entertaining ourselves to death? Maybe. Maybe they're just not that bored and desperate and really focused on change. There are people focused on change, but it's not so much about income inequality. It's about mistreatment of minority groups. That's a really good point. I like what you're saying there about technology and most goods are affordable for everybody in the economic playing field, if you will. And again, as you said, basic necessities. And then of course, entertainment is cheap. And maybe that does make us different than those other revolutions and things that happened. Although, as we also know, those things were smoldering for decades before they finally just sort of blew up. I just sort of wonder, you know, is this just to put it, let it keep smoldering for another couple of decades. And then we'll see if what you're saying continues to hold or just maybe it provide a really new dynamic. But that's interesting. That's a really good point. Romans bought themselves a lot of time with bread and circuses, keeping the public entertained and not paying attention. We could buy ourselves a lot of time with a 50-inch flat screen TV for $300 or $200 and a Netflix subscription with seemingly endless content and many other places where you can get content even for free. We can entertain ourselves pretty well and not have a feeling of deprivation. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, speaking of entertainment, that kind of brings us to our next topic. Sports ratings are down. There was a blog called Frankly Speaking, and the post just said, hey, sports ratings since COVID-19 are way down. The U.S. Open final round was down 56% from last year. U.S. Open tennis was down 45%. French Open tennis was down 57%. Kentucky Derby viewership was down 43%. The Indianapolis 500 down 32%. Through the first four weeks of the NFL season, viewership is down 10%. NHL playoffs down 39%. NBA finals down 45% so far. It's unclear if this is just an American phenomenon. The Tour de France was up 73% in Europe. Toronto's Raptors playoff basketball, when compared to last year when they won the championship, was up 26% in Canada. It appears as if European football is also up across the board. Indian cricket was up 15% in its first week. Don, does this mean anything to you, the fact that we're just not watching sports like we used to? Well, the article talks about a couple factors, and part of it is I think people are a little distracted with the presidential election and all the uh, politics and whatnot. But I think that the bigger one is American sports is set up very well to be always on in that one season ends as another season is starting and it flows with the time of year and people get in a pattern of watching their thing when it's supposed to happen. And when it doesn't happen, when it's supposed to happen, people are really thrown off. 
I mean, it was weird watching NBA finals here in October. It was amazing, except I'm a big NBA fan. I couldn't care less about the NFL or about baseball. But I think for people, the patterns really play a role. I'm not sure why that doesn't affect in other countries. Canada's got nothing else going on, right? They're just watching Yetis out the window and, okay, the Raptors are on. We should watch them. It's better than seeing the uh, giant snow beast. I can't speak for Canada because obviously I'm not Canadian. I just wonder, though, do you think this is a bigger sign about American habits? And that, let's face it, sports were all gone for, for multiple months. As we know, habits get broken and then new habits change. I really feel like America needed sports back in March and in April when we were looking for anything to escape to is because every day the news was just so bleak about COVID. And yet we didn't have it. All we had was a Michael Jordan documentary, which everybody that I know at least seemed to watch. And it was fantastic. And that was about as close as we could get to sports. But after that, I think people have kind of been meandering around finding new things to do. And I really wonder now if the sports leagues are not necessarily in trouble, but are going to have to readjust their revenue projections, how profitable they are. I wonder if we're going to start to see a decrease in contracts in terms of how much athletes can command, because I'm a big NBA fan. I watched a ton of basketball in the bubble. Did I barely watch NFL football now. I didn't watch the Kentucky Derby or golf. Or I used to have these things on every once in a while. I can't really tell you what I've been doing instead, but I just know that I'm not watching it, and I don't know if I'm coming back like I used to. And I wonder if that's what a lot of Americans are doing. We just kind of started meandering around and finding other ways to fill our time. Yeah, I'm not sure what we're doing instead. Maybe we're not watching Tiger King because that's already passed, but maybe we're interacting with our families and reading more books. No, wait, that seems less likely. I, I don't know. I'm really more interested to see what happens next year and that if this trend follows next year and more, I see that there's going to be a change in how many people attend games because if you can watch it at home and you stop being in the pattern of tailgating and whatnot, will you really go back? I'm not sure, but yeah, I'm with you. It is curious when there's few distractions. By the way, shout out to The Last Dance because that was fantastic. For the last couple of years, we've already seen a decline in sports in terms of people going to the stadium. It's kind of a lousy experience. takes forever to get in. You got to sit outside in the weather. You actually have to focus kind of on the game because you're there for the game, whereas at home you can have 18 different screens on and, and be walking around doing other things. So we've already started to see kind of a decline there. And also because TVs are so good, it's almost more fun just to be at home. But it just seems like people are turning off their television or they're changing the screen. I I mean, one thing I've noticed, and this is even before this year, is I teach 12-year-olds, right? And for the first few years of my teaching career, kids were like, hey, Mr. Bill, did you watch the the World Series last night? Or did you watch the the playoffs? Or did you watch this game? And, and, you know, I, I usually come up pretty regularly. I haven't had a kid ask me about the baseball world series in 10 years. I rarely have kids that want to talk about the NBA or the NFL. Most kids I talk to nowadays want to talk about Fortnite, Call of Duty, Minecraft, Roblox, or fail videos that they watch on TikTok and and other just weird things that are very niche. And I kind of wonder if Americans are just stratifying even more. We all find things to entertain ourselves, but we have less and less common. Sports were the one thing that seemed to be staying in common. It was the one thing more and more people could at least talk about. And I just wonder if we're, we're really now starting to lose ourselves in terms of having any sort of common glue. 
you make a good point about the age group. And I remember reading that the SEC football division can't draw enough students. The students buy their season tickets, but they don't necessarily go to the game because the Wi-Fi is bad. And why do I want to go there? Like you said, the TVs are much better. We had a 19-inch bad TV with a handle on the top until I was in high school. It wasn't the same to watch on TV. But if you're in person, oh my gosh, it's incredible. But there is a trend in young people not going to games. I've seen a little bit at Michigan football and a whole lot at SEC football games. They have empty stands and they're trying their best to figure it out. So there is that age group thing. And I do wonder about that. You know, maybe we're missing something, Zach. You and I don't do social media, really. Maybe there is something about a community on TikTok where people are really getting together and sharing ideas. And it's a unifying culture that everybody can talk about this video or that video or that person on Instagram. And we just don't get it because we're not there. That's true. But I also just wonder if one of the great changes that the internet and technology have brought to us over the last 20 years is... It's just allowed millions of different subcultures of people to exist. And I'm not saying it is a bad thing, but if you're really into dachshunds wearing costumes, then maybe that's just your website. That's your community you're hanging out in, right? If you're really into cats with yarn balls or cats that flush toilet on YouTube, like you're, that's where you're at, right? Like you're into trampoline wrestling or something. And it used to be, though, that all of those people maybe had an interest in the Lions if they were winning the game or they had an interest if the Tigers were going to make the World Series. And maybe those people still do, but I don't know anymore. Is it possible that just people are just gone into their own little portals and it's harder and harder to get them to come out? But maybe they're getting more out of it. Maybe they've been watching the Lions sadly for five years with their fathers or grandfathers, and now they've descended into a world of trampoline wrestling. I didn't even know that was a thing. And they really enjoy it. And it's developed and they're scratching an itch. They're getting into it. And they that's something that really brings them joy. That's better, right? Even if they're in a little niche thing that makes them happier. By the way, my favorite is soap cutting videos. I found out about those a few years ago. If you What's have, going on with those? What are, are they making like models? You, you gotta no no, you gotta look it up. People cut bars of soap, then they slice them and it comes off in tiny pieces. And if you ever have a group of children that's really anxious and upset and you have one minute left in class, if you put a soap cutting video up on the screen, they'll just be pacified and go into a, uh, (laughs) like a psychotic slumber. It's hilarious. They're good stuff. My dad, who's, you know, now in his seventies and and is a man that likes to stay busy, but uh, every once in a while when we go home, it will be like nine o'clock at night and he's just got headphones on and a laptop and he's just ignoring us. And you're like, what are you doing? And he's like, just watching old singing competitions. Like what? Like that's his thing. Just like to watch singing competitions. I love it when people are talented and they belt out a great song and that's his world, right? He's not, well, he's not coming back to sports. And Don, you and I are kind of what sports want. We are middle-aged men that do manly things. And yet you and I aren't watching sports like we used to. And that's gotta be a major problem. And you and I can't even account for how we're spending this time, whether it be soap cutting videos or or raiding dachshund costumes. I just wonder if this is a problem. And I I do think it's an issue about, again, I'm, I'm very concerned about America as a whole, as a nation that needs something that we can rally around. That's why I'm a big believer that we need more parades. We should be celebrating something instead of just always being angry. And I'm also a believer that we need some sort of collective glue. And it seems like there's less and less that we can agree on or get excited about. And I'm just sort of a little nervous about seeing this kind of data. I know that we shouldn't be proud that we were all sitting together watching something on TV, but don't we need something? 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Remember when, like, 10 and 20 years ago, people were like, I can't believe you're watching more sports. Like, sports have way too much of a priority in our culture. We're ignoring the big things. And that used to be the debate about how, like, I can't believe we we make sports be such a big deal. And now I'm almost wondering if we need to make them a bigger deal. I, I mean, yeah, I guess so. Those are something we can rally around. I'm not necessarily sold. I'm not sure it's great. I also think there's a lot of isolated people watching sports. Our friend calls it uh, unsocial TV watching when her husband just watches TV at everybody's expense. High volume isolating and just doing that. And I think that's some of what sports viewing is. Aren't you and I a little bit different from people of previous generation in that we're going to our kids' events? I know my dad was at every event I ever did, but seemed like there's a lot of dads not there. Maybe they're just at home watching Monday Night Football in a solitary fashion. Can we just pat ourselves on the back and say, it's because we're better fathers, because we're more interactive? We could have that cognitive dissonance. I like that. I like that. But I just, I wonder if that's what people are doing is I, I just don't think that just because people turned off the sports that they're walking in the woods, meditating about life, reading war and peace and li- listening to Beethoven. It just doesn't seem like that was the substitute that's happening. Okay. Well, you can think that I'm thinking that they're reading classics, doing yoga and um, doing sit-ups the entire time. And ultimately they could just be watching soap videos. They could just be watching soap cutting videos. Speaking of uh, the final topic then is how concerned should you be about space junk, Don? The New Yorker magazine this week had this fascinating issue uh, that they brought up about all of the junk that is now circulating in orbit above Earth. And here's the best paragraph I read. Since 1957, humanity has placed nearly 10,000 satellites into the sky. All but 2,700 are now defunct or destroyed. Collectively, they cost billions of dollars but they were launched with the understanding that they were cheaper to abandon than to sustain. Some like Sputnik have burned up. Thousands like Vanguard will stay in orbit for decades or centuries, careening around the planet as ballistic garbage, a hazard to astronauts and unmanned spacecraft alike. These satellites are joined by thousands of spent rocket bodies and countless smaller items, space floats, Sam, created by wear or collision or explosions, things like bolts and other bits of metal. There are otter specimens too. Object number 43205 is the functional Tesla Roadster with a mannequin on it that Elon Musk launched in 2018. A company called Celestis fires capsules loaded with human remains into orbit where they will stay for nearly two and a half centuries. For years, space shuttles emptied their septic systems during missions. Astronaut urine instantly transformed into glimmering snowflake clouds is reputed to be among the most beautiful visions in space. In 2007, a shuttle jettisoned a 14,000-pound tank of ammonia. Astronauts, too, have accidentally let objects fall into orbit during spacewalks. A camera, a spatula, a glove, a mirror, a bag filled with $100,000 worth of tools. So, Don, the article just continues to talk about we've got all this junk up there in orbit and it's running into each other. It's splintering. It's causing even more junk to go around. They talk about an article where the International Space Station almost got rammed by a piece of junk coming in at thousands of miles an hour and how people might have died. What did you think about this? Is this a problem? 
Huge problem. I thought it was super interesting. As you know, not a huge space guy, but I read this and I'm the one that told you to read this article. Also mentioned Drew Fostiel, Lake Orient grad, was mentioned prominently in this article. I mean, it's a little like global warming in that it's not a problem until all of a sudden it's a big problem and we realize it. And the part that made me understand is when these two satellites collided and instantly they went from two floating objects to thousands and thousands of floating objects, each of which accelerates to this speed that is just unbelievable. So a speck of paint, a paint chip flying through space can scratch the space shuttle's window so badly the window has to be replaced. A flying bolt, small bolt, the size of a fingernail can go straight through a space shuttle. It's amazingly dangerous. And anytime there's a collision, there's more problems. And oh, what's up there? Oh, the GPS satellites, which does the time for all our phones and makes everything work in our society because that's where the perfect time works because it keeps track of everything. In addition, all these other satellites we truly depend on are up there. Is this a few collisions away from having just mass chaos? It's a real big problem. And we're just beginning to start to reckon with it. As you know, I'm a big Space Force guy. And I'm also somebody that believes strongly in American national defense. And I think this is a major national defense issue. As you just said, our technology, our satellites, our communication systems, all are just one tiny bolt away from getting hit and possibly, you know, knocked into a real problem. And it's kind of amazing that this issue's happened. It also makes me wonder, will it become harder to just travel out of Earth's orbit at some point if we do want to start launching rockets and space shuttles to go back to the moon or go colonize Mars? Have we possibly put ourselves into a position where we can't leave this planet now because of all the junk that is now surrounding. They talked about how over time, all this junk might actually like form its own ring like Saturn in terms of just all these thousands of pieces that continue to continue to increase as they smash into each other. This was just fascinating. Oh yeah. And we can, it could be as like a ring around Saturn, but we can't get out of it and we need to get out of it in order to do in the exploration, but more practically, put the satellites up that we use that are important for our day-to-day. So important so much that we really don't understand it until if it went down. A lot like your uh, Wi-Fi at your house or your cell phone connection. You don't really appreciate how good it is until you're all of a sudden without it. And you're like, oh my gosh, I need this to do anything I want to do. And it's not being addressed. There's just some beginnings of ideas, but it's a huge problem. I mean, there's a litany of problems. And if you're a new world administrator, you should do deal with this. But this one seems like an easier one. It doesn't seem like as hard as global climate change, where we have to really change all the ways we go about doing things. This should be a few corrections away from not having this problem anymore. It's amazing when you think how important communication is, not only to the economy, not only to, to national defense, just to people's lives, that a whole nation or a whole world could be upended by a 10 cent bolt that just, you know, crushes a satellite at thousands of miles an hour in, you know, upper space orbit. I just thought that was fascinating. This whole thing also though reminds me of that economic concept, the tragedy of the commons, right? Nobody owns the orbits of, of outside of earth and stuff like that. And therefore for years, We've just allowed corporations to send up satellites, to send up their materials, to try to provide a good or a service down here on Earth. But there's been no tax. It's all been these externalities now, these unseen costs, right? And what I was just sort of wondering is, do you think the United Nations 
should put a huge satellite tax on, you know, Verizon or on Facebook or on Elon Musk as they keep sending up these satellites. Who's going to be paying for the cleanup cost of this? Who's going to be paying for accidents? Like legally, I'm curious if one company's bolt hits somebody's satellite and takes it down, are they huh. liable? You can you sue for that? Could you sue Russia for their 30-year-old spy satellite, which is now defunct, destroying the brand new GPS satellite that was just launched by another company? Yeah, I think litigation is not a great solution because obviously we spend most of the money on lawyers, but I like the idea of a tax and regulating this. And like you said, to be clear, one bolt might destroy one satellite, but that satellite blows up and now it's 10,000 bolts that are all now projectiles. And there's this point with the article where they talk about a critical mass where it's just like, the mutually assured destruction. One satellite destroys another satellite, whether intentionally or not, which leads all satellites to crumble. And we're in trouble. It's not like the giant island of floating trash in the Pacific, which is also a good example of the tragedy of the commons. This is one that affects our day-to-day lives. And all of a sudden it would just be, boom, my phone doesn't work. Boom, the Wi-Fi doesn't work. I can't get my connection. I can't transfer money with my bank. My mortgage wasn't paid automatically. Like there's so many things that could be affected by this. It's really, really huge. The UN seems like a pretty toothless organization. It's a way for countries to try to negotiate and come to some sort of consensus. And it usually doesn't seem like it works that effectively. And this goes back to like our third or fourth podcast where we talked about who owns the moon. I was one that really was arguing, like, I think this is an important issue for national security. And whoever owns space sort of owns the future or controls the future. And a part of me just says, don't you think this is a sign that America needs to, like, double, triple, quadruple down on space funding so that we can get up there, control the orbits, clean up the orbits and possibly start to regulate how the orbits work. I'd rather have us be the ones that are thinking about this than the Chinese or the Europeans or the Russians. I'm going the other direction. I think this is more like the ozone layer discussion we had a while back in that all nations need to get get together and say, look, we're all screwed here. It's not like one of us is going to really own this space. It's all shared. We need to get together and get this crap out. You can't put anything into space now unless you take three things out. And so that's the rule and you got to do it. Otherwise, we're not going to, you can't launch anything else in space. And some sort of enforcement measures try to keep the North Koreans in check, although they can't afford to do this. They don't have any food. But still, like some sort of regulation can solve this and it can be done without too much trouble. I think your idea of we own it, you don't, stay the hell out of our way just results in more bad things happening in space. I don't know, though. I, I think you're, you got kind of a Pollyanna sort of view here that, you know, you go up, take three things down, leave one thing. Like, there's got to be some sort of mechanism where we can verify that that work was getting done. And a part of me just says, like, the first nation who gets up there is the first nation that can really set the agenda. And I'm just surprised you're not going to call for a quadrupling of our space budget, our space force budget. I really think that's it's short-sighted, maybe. How do you colonize it? It's not like putting up walls and barriers and saying, we own this territory, don't come near here. Like, it's not a fort in the Civil War. It's space. It's endless. It goes on forever. There's many orbits, although the ones closest to Earth are the most used and most concerning. But I don't know how you control it. 
that's where you start putting your space stations. You start putting American-only space stations up there, and you start putting them every 50 miles of orbit, and you start to just say, this is our space. We're controlling it. First of all, I think if you put one up every 50 miles of orbit, that would be tens of thousands of space stations. And by the way, aren't these things incredibly vulnerable that a bolt can destroy them? What does it make Putin send up a giant bag of bolts and just says, good luck with that? <laughs> Here are some rusty nails I found on the side of the luck America. That's right. We have plenty of these. <laughs> You brought up the idea of how this, I was thinking the same thing when you said that this issue seems like the plastic in the oceans issue that we've had in America, where for years we just started through plastic around everywhere in our environment. We didn't think about it. Now we've got microplastics in our water, in our air, in our soil, and, and we still don't even know what this is going to do. And, and this issue in space just felt like it. Because as you said too, like the plastic is floating in the oceans and it's all kind of like cooling up in certain areas. And then the next thing I thought about, though, was when I was in elementary school, there was a major push besides don't use hairspray anymore to solve the ozone. There was a major push to take the plastic that like a six pack of like soda cans was to make sure that we cut the circles, if you remember, so that like the ducks oh, yeah. and the didn't choke to death. Got to save the cute animals. All, we didn't talk at all about like hey, throw that away or recycle the plastic. Instead, we just seem to say, make sure you cut the circle so that when we do throw it in a river, some otter is not going to choke to death. <laughs> and I guess my question is, can you think of like a six-pack circle cutting solution here for space junk? Is there, is there some sort of like weird fix to this that, that maybe we're not looking at? Or maybe there's going to be a fix that we're really going to focus on and yet ultimately it does nothing? To be clear... Uh, the article talks about this super cool robot thing that does that, and they're testing it, and it's amazing. It's a feat of engineering, and I did refer this article to my two friends who are physics teachers who thought it was super interesting. But yeah, I don't think it's as simple as cut your six-pack holders, but a lot like recycling. I'm sure you felt better when you were cutting your six-pack holders of tab soda and making sure that it wouldn't kill the cute animals, because who the hell cares about the ugly animals? I grew up in, in more conservative Traverse City where, again, our focus was just making sure we cut the circles. We didn't talk about like not throwing it into the river, but you were more in a, in a liberal bastion of Ann Arbor. Did they educate you guys differently about this issue? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then we uh, put it out in recycling bins that were made out of balsa wood so that we could keep using them day after day. We wanted to reduce. Yes, recycling was a bit of a panacea, but you can't do that. Ann Arbor's a little like San Francisco. I'm surprised there's any plastic bags in that town at all. Well, do you have any other thoughts on this one? I just thought the space junk issue was interesting. It's one that I, I guess I think I'd heard about, but I really hadn't thought about. And now I do think uh, it, there's some consequences here. Did you have any final thoughts on it? Oh, yeah. There's a little bit of video that you've seen a thousand times and I've seen a thousand times when I think they're showing the Saturn V rocket going up to the moon launch. And there's this big ring that pops off the bottom of it. And you see the earth behind and the fire and this big ring of metal disappearing out into the ether. And yes. it looks just a cool, cool moment. And so many people have seen it. And I thought back to that and I thought over and over, where did that ring of metal go? And turns out it's probably floating around, zeroing in on the GPS satellite that we depend on or the space station that we use for research and whatnot. And it's just going to blow that thing up. And it just gives you a different idea. 
I've seen visuals like that, and, and it does make you wonder if those things are still up there. They did say in the article that a lot of stuff does eventually come back down into Earth's atmosphere, and it tends to blow up in the atmosphere or burn up as it's falling down. And therefore, if you wait long enough, a lot of this stuff could make its way back down to Earth. But I also think it's interesting, if you hit the right piece or if you get the right object that's big enough, are we sure it's always going to burn up in the atmosphere? And is it possible we, we on Earth you know, could have falling shrapnel that just kind of comes and makes its way back down? Well, the article talked about Skylab, the first big American satellite, came down in rural Australia, and the Australian community sent a uh, a ticket for littering to the Houston uh, Rocket Center there. So, yeah, it could come down. It could be bad, but it's just, it's unlikely, but it is a concern. Now, my hope is this. America swept the Nobel Prizes this year. Every single Nobel Prize went to a team with an American on it. We swept we have smart people. Hopefully they're focusing on this. It seems like it's small groups that are working on this, but this is a big issue. Hopefully people are launching in on this and not focusing on something that doesn't matter. This is an unseen issue. As we know, people that can't smell it, taste it, or, or really be impacted immediately don't think about it. And I just think it's one of those like something that people at a cocktail party can talk about the space junk. Maybe they make a t-shirt about it. And then that's it. I, now, I just I, be worse. Should we prioritize this over the moon and Mars land trips? I think it's all one package. Again, I'm somebody that believes America needs to have a strong presence in space for our future and our safety and security. And I think cleaning up the orbit, but then owning the orbit matters. I think having a nice colony base on, on the moon to help as a segue to get to Mars. Again, I think we got to double and quadruple down on all space expenditures. I'm, I'm against you. This is the issue. This is the most important thing with space. Clean up the space jump junk. We don't need to go back to the moon. That's an engineering mission. We've been there. There's nothing there. We don't need to go to Mars. There's no point in it. We just need to take care of our backyard. Right now, our backyard is filled with weeds and crazy stuff that flies out and destroys things. Need a, this is the priority. But I would just say the only way to take care of it is to be able to control the situation. I just don't... I, I'm, I'm somebody who's believing that international bodies all getting together and talking is just international bodies getting together and talking. When you say you're going to control space, I picture you standing in the Pacific Ocean, stopping the waves and throwing yourself at a wave saying, I'm stopping the waves. There's no way to stop the waves. It's too big. Space is the same thing. You might be right. I would have one of those big admiral hats too, though. <laughs> as long as it has well, the scrambled eggs there on the bill. <laughs> Well, Don, uh, those are your three problems this week. Which one do you think is the most important that we try to solve? Can you rank them here? Of course, we had income inequality, decline in sports ratings, and then space junk. How do you rank them? I'm going income inequality is the most important because it affects so many people and it seems to be unchanging and, well, unchanging for a lot of low-income groups and minority groups. Uh, number two is space junk. Very weird is space junk. Three, uh, I believe sports are coming back next year. But I mean, it's to be seen, but I believe it's coming back. I'd have to go opposite. I'm going to go sports viewership is the most important thing. I'm a believer in the connective glue of a country. We need something to have in common. I am a little rattled that people aren't watching sports and therefore don't have something to talk about as much. I would then go with income inequality, although I feel like this is an issue 
that has been going on forever. Sadly, I think it's a historical theme that I'm not exactly sure how to solve, but it's always been here and it's still going to be here. I'd love to look for solutions. Space junk, when you get serious about wanting to control space, I'll be serious about wanting to pick up the junk. <laughs> All right. Of course, opposite. It works. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely. Happy to have fun reading this week. Hopefully find some more stuff. Yeah, definitely. Take care. Bye.